This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scott. We plow and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with the golden grain and the veil with the fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Hello, I'm Sophie and welcome to our first episode of Rebel Lives, part of the People's History of Scotland podcast series. In these one-off episodes, we'll be taking a look at particular rebellious figures from Scottish history in between the main chapter episodes of the book. Each time, I'll be joined by the author of A People's History, Chris Bambury, and a special guest to discuss the life of our Scottish rebel. This week, we're joined by counter-editor David Jameson to discuss 16th century reformer John Knox. Before we start, I'm aware that Knox is a bit of a contentious figure of Scottish history, so please do feel free to jump in at each other if you disagree with others' opinion. Chris, for a bit of 16th century background, Firstly, can I ask where we're at with the Stuart dynasty in Scotland before Knox and the Reformation take centre stage? Well, the Stuart dynasty was weak. It suffered from kings dying early, often murdered, dying in battle and so on, and young kids having to take the throne in a situation where the nobles would then rule in their name. And that would lead to vicious infighting between the nobility as to who controlled the young king. So we had a voracious nobility, one of the most venal in Europe, and a very weak monarchy. And Mary Queen of Scots herself is the daughter of James V, who dies, leaving her as a baby. She is sent to France for basically for safety. And Scotland will come into civil war with her mother, Mary de Guise, acting as regent. And really, by the time of Mary, Queen of Scots, is coming of age, the Reformation is taking place in Scotland against a background where really Scotland is being fought over by two absolutist powers, the Valois Kingdom of France and the Tudor Kingdom of Elizabeth I in England. And one of those is essentially going to take control. If the Catholic side win, France will essentially control Scotland. If the Protestant side win, Scotland will take a major step towards English control, which is eventually what happens in 1603. So this is a very fluid situation. And compounded, which I'm sure David will talk about, is the Catholic Church was in a very bad state in Scotland at the time. So that fed the demand for reform across Scottish society. Yes, so like other reformers, Knox and his ilk would launch an energetic attack on the Catholic Church at this time. David, can you outline the state and role of the church in Scotland to give us a bit of a sense of the material backdrop which would reform the reformers' critique when it came? So the the Catholic Church in Scotland would perform much of the same function as it did across whole swathes of Europe at the time. I mean, the Catholic Church in these days is a unique institution. There's not really an equivalent of it in, in the kind of modern world in that it was a vast continental network of churches, of intellectuals, scholars, priests. It was continent-wide, but it was local, and it provided much of the ideological ballast for a feudal system, a, a medieval system, which is now under very serious strain. 
it's seeing new critique from waves of heretics who have increased in regularity ever since the plagues in the in the 1300s. In Scotland, it's showing the signs of that strain as well. It's increasingly politicised quite overtly by Scottish nobles who are fighting for influence within the institution. Its practices as a landlord and as a network of patronage and of incipient commercialism, these things are also being increasingly criticised by still a very small, at this point, Reformation-minded movement. In the 30s, there's the emergence of criticism of the church, and the Catholic Church responds in Scotland with brutality, martyring early Protestants and early critics of the church. In fact, John Lauder takes on the position of the kind of chief prosecutor of of heretics in Scotland at this time and would become a kind of arch nemesis to John Knox, killing, among many others, George Wishart, who was a very early Protestant reformer. To remind people of what the, the broad outlines of the Reformation movement is, this is a movement demanding a return to scripture, claiming that the Catholic Church has adulterated the genuine Christian faith and supplanted it with its own kind of selfish, materialist, earthly motivations. So the Bible is very much in vogue now, whereas, of course, for much of the medieval period, very, very few people in society could even read. But in any case, the Bible was preached in Latin. Latin was the kind of official language of the church and was spoken by a very thin layer of intellectuals who were spread out across European society. Now, a burgeoning element of intellectuals in society. Not so much in Scotland, it needs to be said, because remember, Scotland's a country with very backward economic and social conditions. Its towns are very, very small. It doesn't have the kind of intellectual ferment you're seeing, for example, in the German cities, where the Reformation movement was preceded by movements like humanism, which urged a return to the works of antiquity and a critique of contemporary society from that vantage point and a critique of the church from that vantage point. We don't really see so much of that in Scotland just because the Scottish town-dwelling classes, as I said, are very, very small and politically weak. But we need to bear in mind that just because the conditions of the economy and society and the balance of social class elements in a society might not be right for a development like the Reformation, doesn't mean that those ideas don't travel widely to the kind of small islands of people like John Knox, who were increasingly receptive to his message. This is a period when there is an explosion in literature because of the invention of things like the Gutenberg Press. And so Knox and other reformers in Scotland were receiving these texts from, from Europe and acting on them against the domestic Scottish Catholic Church. Okay, so moving on to Knox himself. As you said, by the mid-16th century, Protestantism was spreading in some of the Scottish towns. In 1546, John Knox took part in a Protestant rebellion which had murdered Cardinal Beaton and held out in St Andrew's Castle for a year. When the castle fell, Knox was sent to work as a galley slave in the French Navy as punishment. Chris, can you explain who Knox was prior to these events? Knox was born in Haddington in East Lothian, and I think this is not unimportant. I think David's correct. There was a very small uh, mercantile class in Scotland, much smaller than England or elsewhere in Europe, but 
it was concentrated in the East Coast towns, Haddington, Edinburgh, Perth. And already, for instance, the Bible translated into English by Wycliffe, the widow of the Lords, much earlier, had entered Scotland. Other tracts were entering it. Knox, his early career was as a priest and a notary, but he was radicalised, and I think that's the correct term, by preaching to us by Thomas Guillaume and George Wishart, which was particularly important. After Wishart's execution, the burning at the stake, which is very brutal, horrible, he took part in this reformer's occupation of St Andrew's Castle after the killing of Beaton, at which time he experienced his first call to the ministry. So after the fall of the castle, and he served its poor service, servitude, we should say, in the Atlantic galley fleets of the French, he made his way as a minister to Frankfurt and Geneva, and in Geneva, of course, met with John Calvin. So when he returns to Scotland, coinciding with the return of Mary, Queen of Scots, Knox is already, and he's also been in England, quite a well-known reforming figure, not just in Scotland, but across much of Europe. And his ability as a preacher gives him, if you like, the ability to pull around in more people. And I think it's worth just saying something here is, is the way he's now portrayed is either you know, the man who went around locking up the swings on the Saturday nights so he couldn't enjoy herself, or as a misogynist attacking Mary, Queen of Scots. I think the truth is somewhat in between when we discuss this. For instance, regarding his attacks on Mary, Queen of Scots, it should be said that you know, these were rulers, Mary de Guise, who was particularly determined to not just maintain the Stuart monarchy, but really drive it into an alliance, with, as I said, with absolutist France and bring Scotland in well, essentially as a part of the Kingdom of France, allied with France against England. So from the very beginning, despite Knox having fallen out badly with Queen Elizabeth in England, he was already understanding the need to get the English on side if they were going to try and create a sort of Protestant Scotland that he wished. The stay in Geneva is extremely important. If you want to go and see a very impressive modern statue of Knox, you can find it on the, the Reformation wall in central Geneva, where he's up there with, among others, John Calvin. Calvin has, or is trying to establish in this period in Geneva his version of a Reformed church. It's quite a shocking development in Europe at the time that within a couple of decades, you've gone from a situation where Almost everyone is a, is a Catholic, except for tiny numbers of heretics and smaller religious denominations, to a situation whereby the middle of the 1500s, you have multiple tendencies. The largest, I suppose, are Catholics, uh, Lutheran-type Protestants. So those are followers of Martin Luther, who's the famous kind of helmsman of the, of the World Reformation movement. You have Reformed Christians or Calvinists, as, as they would come to be known after John Calvin in Geneva. And then you have adherents of various radical Reformation sects that we might get onto and perhaps discuss their absence in the, in the Scottish context. John Knox would become a, a follower of the Calvinists' Reformation, which you know had some schismatic differences with Martin Luther. And he would learn much of that creed and refine it whilst in Geneva and also on continental Europe. He, he also taught various other congregations where he would become influential in spreading Calvin's ideas. Probably the most famous Calvinist attitude is what's sometimes described as predestination, which is that God has already decided before time began 
who would be saved and who would be damned. This was an extension of the Lutheran heresy, as it were, that human beings go to heaven and they receive grace from God because of their faith in God, not because they agree and adhere to the rules and dictates of the church. So you can see in that doctrine how dangerous this was to the institution of the church. Famously, it became a debate of, are you saved because you believe in God and you accept Christ as your savior? Or are you saved because you engage in good works, the good works very often being works that tied you to the church hierarchy? Calvin and his followers went one step further in saying, not only can you only be saved by God through his grace and not through your own works, but he's already decided. And grace is simply, your belief in God, as it were, is simply evidence that you are one of the elect. Now, this is often a, a kind of reviled attitude, and it's typically portrayed by critics as quite an authoritarian attitude. Here's us, the great, the good people, the saved, and all you other denominations are the damned and so on. And of course, as time would go on, it would become quite grim. It's often associated today with the fact that as Calvinist class societies developed, moved into modernity, people would say, I clearly have God's grace because I'm rich or because I'm high social status. That proves that God likes me and so on. In Knox's day and in Calvin's day, in many senses, it's a radically egalitarian is probably the wrong word, but it's a leveling doctrine. Because what you're saying is God basically only has two groups of people, the elect and the damned. And he decides. No church decides. Kings and queens don't decide. And where Knox is traveling to, and it should be said, his, his book, First Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regimen of, of Women, is actually very controversial even within Calvinist circles. Because figures like John Calvin are worried about the implications of preaching that rulers can be wrong for a kingdom and that individual Christians can point at their king or queen and say, you don't deserve to rule me. For obvious reasons, this is a, a revolutionary idea in early modern Europe, that the Christian community, which is who the elect are, have a right to decide whether their king or queen has the right to rule them, based on whether or not they are properly Christian. There's just the most trace outline here of what would eventually become ideas like citizenship. If you're one of the elect, you belong to this Christian community. You're as Christian as everyone else, and you have a right to say, this person doesn't have a right to rule me because they're not sufficiently Christian. Knox isn't a member of the Radical Reformation. Remember, in Europe at this time, there are some Protestant movements who are arriving at the conclusion that any form of sort of princely authority is a crime against God. God is the one ruler of humanity. We should overthrow the kings and the princes and, and, and so forth. Knox isn't going anywhere in that direction. Knox fundamentally accepts, as do other Protestants, that people should obey earthly rulers because God has appointed us into our class stations in life. But he is edging towards this idea that there are certain circumstances under which a godly people can depose a godless ruler. On the point of them being women, this is an act of opportunism on Knox's part. His enemies in this day happen to be women rulers. In fact, I believe some other Calvinist theologians actually say to Knox, careful now, because eventually there are going to be 
women Protestant rulers, and we're not going to be denouncing them. And sure enough, Elizabeth arrives shortly after the publication of the book, and she would actually ban him from returning to England because of the, <laughs> the comments made in the book. So it turns out to be quite a foolish move. It's probably fair to say that Knox's misogyny was not greater than that of anyone else living in his time. He's using the, the issue opportunistically, as I say, but also because you kind of have to use a historical imagination to put yourself in his mindset at the time. Knox, I think, would have read the Bible and read the very many unpleasant things that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, has to say about women and their influence in society in general. And I think for him, it's not so much, he's not making a programmatic point that we must not make women rulers. He's saying that when God decides to make a woman the ruler of a kingdom, he has marked that kingdom for destruction. And in fact, when he returns to Scotland, this is what he'll say about Mary, Queen of Scots. It's not that he's saying we should be wiser and make men rulers. His principal point is Scotland is doomed. It's similar in its mode of thinking to predestination and election. God's already decided he's going to make Mary Queen of Scots queen. And he's done this because he's decided it's time for us to be punished. This is the sort of thinking that's emerging from the Calvinist movement. Yes, of course, it's a misogynist argument, not greatly more misogynist than those which are common currency at the time, but it's both an opportunist act on Knox's part and it indicates his burgeoning critique of power that ultimately, if rulers are insufficiently Christian, which in his eyes, of course, means insufficiently reformed, then the people have a right to call for them to be deposed, which is a radical rupture with thinking about class and power in these times. Interestingly, Knox was invited to return by a section of the nobility. What were their motives? Well, I think it's important to echo David here that we're not talking about Knox being the equivalent of Thomas Munzer in Germany, who was preaching a, a form of primitive communism and in fact tried to enact it. I think for the nobility, for a section of the nobility, they were always concerned about the monarchy in Scotland having too great a power, which could then impinge on their localised power. So when Knox says that no mortal man can be the head of the church, and it adds on to that, the idea that if the monarch goes against God, the monarch can be disposed. This actually appeals to them. So does the idea of a church, which is ruled by conventicles, by its own congregation. The nobility understand that they can use their local power to influence those events. And in fact, this would be an argument within Presbyterians in Scotland, which would go on for centuries about the ability of local grandees to influence the decisions to appoint ministers, for instance. So I think rather like in Poland, what the Scottish, a section of the Scottish, the dominant section as it would be, saw was that Knox was preaching something which would weaken not just Mary de Guise, but the monarchy as a whole, and give them opportunities to strengthen their control of their own lands and to administer not just justice as they did through their own courts, but would be able to influence control to a degree over the local church, the Kirk, which was going to remain one way or other the key ideological instrument and an instrument of social control in early modern Scotland. 
Okay, on to Reformation events themselves then. In 1559, Knox preached a radical sermon in Perth which unleashed a chain of events that was the Scottish Reformation. It differed significantly from that in England. Can you explain what the difference was and why John Knox was important to it? The story of Knox's engagement with the English Reformation is quite amusing because all the while he was kind of this international figure in the Calvinist Reformation and a leading figure, of course, in Scotland, he also makes occasional walk-on roles into the English Reformation where he is a consistent annoyance of everyone involved. He clashes with Cramner, the famous English reformer, probably the mastermind of the English Reformation, over what appear to us to be completely trivial matters. So there's an, a never-ending conflict with Cranmer and his followers over whether you, one should kneel before the Eucharist, with Knox's contention being that this involves you know, the worship of the bread and wine, and therefore it's a nod to kind of false Catholic teachings and so on. Knox was great at picking little fights with people and burning bridges with powerful figures who he really needed the help of. But the big difference which must have been obscured to Knox and his followers at the time between the English and the, and the Scottish Reformations is that, of course, the English Reformation is the characteristic Reformation from above. It's something that's set in motion by Henry, mostly for political and diplomatic reasons. It's continued under a series of monarchs, not least Elizabeth, who really consolidates the Anglican Reformation as part of basically declaring English independence from continental Europe and shoring up England's nascent power as a seafaring empire. And Elizabeth will become simultaneously head of state and head of church, which is, despite the fact that in many senses the Anglican Reformation is one of the most conservative of the entire Reformation era, it's also profound because it shows how the Reformation is pointing towards, again, only very in a, in a very early, very primitive way, it's pointing towards the formation of future ideas about national sovereignty and nation statehood. So here we have someone who's head of church and head of state. Now, Elizabeth and other English monarchs sideline the more thoroughgoing Calvinist reformers like Knox, because it's incompatible with the type of church that centralized national church they are trying to create. So Knox and many other reformers move to Scotland to continue the work of reformation there. The Church of Scotland is called the Presbyterian Church because of its form of church governance. That's not a kind of theological designation. It's broadly Calvinist and Reformed in its theology, at least when it's initially set up. But the Presbytery is the formal structure of power that governs the, the church. And in theory, it's a very democratic model. I mean, it could be described as kind of democratic patriarchal in the sense that it's elders, preachers, and various kind of lay authorities are, in theory, the pinnacle of the church. And it doesn't have a central feature like a pope, or as in England, a monarch who's the titular head of the church. Instead, it does have a more formally democratic structure than that, albeit, of course, the real base of the Reformation. And I think this is the, the strength of what Chris has written about the Scottish Reformation in the People's History of Scotland. He's able to identify that the real class base of the Scottish Reformation is the nobility, for the very simple reason that the other popular classes 
which are breaking through in Europe, other parts of Europe, just aren't strong enough in Scotland. So when Knox returns to Scotland, there's a wave of rioting across Reformation towns in Perth, in Dundee, in St Andrews, where famously the, the beautiful Cathedral of St Andrews is gutted and destroyed in a wave of anti-idolatry. And this is also a process that's going on across Europe. So there are these popular elements, but these forces are far too weak to dominate the Reformation process. Ultimately, the domination of the Scottish Reformation by the nobility will limit its radicalism, even its Calvinism. Even Knox, not being a, a figure of the Radical Reformation, he is basically hemmed in by the nobles. This is, a, this is an era where intellectuals across Europe, typically former members of the clergy, are establishing new institutions for the first time with no precedence in European history. Much that the Catholic Church once provided has to be replaced. And the story of the early creation of the Church of Scotland isn't just the, the story of the creation of a church structure, it's also wider social structures, welfare structures, educational structures, which will start to form the basis for a kind of nascent Scottish nationhood. The defeat of Mary de Guise and the French was achieved with English support. Did that set off a further chain of events culminating in the 1603 Union of the Crowns then? You had a, a civil war in Scotland where uh, Mary had brought in a French army and a section of minority and nobility were fighting for her. The Lords of the Congregation, as the reforming nobles were called, and Knox himself realised he needed the support of Elizabeth I. And Knox was in a position to do that. But they were able to secure a treaty with Elizabeth, whereby an English fleet arrived in the Firth of Forth and effectively cut the French off. So there was a French army in Scotland, but it was now stranded with no communication with France. And Mary de Guise eventually signs a treaty which agrees to the withdrawal of both French and English forces from Scotland. But of course, she's reliant on a French army, whereas the reforming nobles aren't. So as soon as the French army goes, she's in trouble. She actually dies. And this allows the Reformation to consolidate itself prior to Mary, really prior to Mary, Queen of Scots, returning after the death of the Dauphin. Just to say something about England, which I think is worth saying, if you read the two novels of Hilary Mantel about Thomas Cromwell, I think you get a picture of some of the strength of the English Reformation, particularly in London, where the Tudor monarchs, Henry VIII, were having to balance between the nobles who supported the Reformation, the majority because they got the land for the churches, and this growing new mercantile class based largely in London, which was very open to reforming ideas. And this was very unsettling for uh, the, the English monarchs. So really in Scotland, those forces weren't represented. The set of events which is unleashed here is that Elizabeth is childless. She's not married. She needs an heir. It is obvious she cannot pick any of the monarchs across Europe because the majority are Catholic. She has been declared a heretic and an illegitimate by the Catholic Church. And this is quite important in regards to Mary, Queen of Scots. The Catholic Church and the Spanish tried to kill her with the aid of English priests and a section of the English nobility. And eventually what the decision is, although it's never formally said, but Elizabeth has clearly taken the decision that Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James VI, 
will be the person who inherits the throne of England. And really, James VI has had a terrible childhood. He's been bullied and beaten by uh, Andrew Melville and other Presbyterian widows who tell him that he's got no uh, he's got no authority. He's just a servant of God like any other. He's been abducted by sections of the warring nobility. He's been tried to kill him. In 1603, when finally a messenger comes from London saying Elizabeth I has died and he is going to be his successor, he literally runs as fast as he can or rides as fast as he can to England to get away from the place. Only returns once. So what they're doing is creating the conditions for a union of the crowns. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contour Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contour.Scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. Okay, to return again to the 1560s, Mary, Queen of Scots, returns widowed from France. David, could you speak a little bit about her personal reign and relationship to Reformation events? Yeah, so she returns having left as a young child, I think at the age of five. She returns in, and at this point I believe she's still 18 or 19 years old, but she returns to a country which has been transformed in her absence by the emergence of this vast Protestant movement. Remember, all of this has happened extremely fast. We've gone from the persecution of a tiny Protestant minority in the 1530s to an established Scottish church in the 1560s, supported by now by a bulk of uh, nobles and by much of the urban population in particular in the towns. So she's immediately faced by a very serious problem of governance. And it's one that monarchs are having to grapple with across the European continent. No one has worked out yet what to do with restive minorities of Protestants in territories which are still formally either governed by Catholic monarchs or the, or the states themselves still formally Catholic. Mary attempts what some others attempt, which is to say, we'll have freedom of religion. You allow me to remain a Catholic with a Catholic household and a Catholic court, and I'll leave the Protestants untroubled. You get a lot of naivety about this in contemporary retellings of the story of Mary, Queen of Scots. People like to assert that Mary is somehow quite a kind of, I don't know, a figure before her time or something, that she's some kind of liberal reformer who's happy for everyone to live and let live. Mary is frightened of this Protestant minority and she's trying to court them to keep her kingdom together under her control. It's because she understands that the balance of forces in the population is potentially against her that she doesn't attempt to purge the country of its Protestant sentiment. Things have gone too far for that, which is the only reason she doesn't attempt to clamp down. Remember, Mary, Queen of Scots, her family in France is engaged in a vicious persecution of French Protestants that will culminate in something that not far off genocide of the French Huguenots. So it's not a question of her having this modern sensibility about religious toleration, it's a strategy. As part of that strategy, she invites Knox to come and talk to her in a bid to build bridges with the Protestants 
and agree on this kind of ceasefire arrangement. Knox is having none of it, probably understanding that the tide of events is on his side. He demands that Mary abandon her Catholic faith and join the Reformation. Famously, I don't know why people love this story so much, but famously reducing her to tears at one point by continuing to pour water on her conciliatory talk and insisting that she abandon the false doctrines of, of Rome and so on. This situation won't last, of course. Knox becomes a very hard-line figure denouncing Mary, Queen of Scots, with the support of much of the nobility. Mary herself will marry a nobleman accused or suspected, rather, of having murdered her first husband. This only increases the hostility of uh, many nobles towards her. Knox, in this period, makes some of his most he uses a lot of flagrant language about the awful rule of women in, in society and so on. But he's increasingly part of a growing faction of Scottish political life, resisting this figure who is really out of time, doesn't understand that the country is changing. I think she attracts sympathy as a figure because you know her position in society is so tenuous as a ruler. She doesn't know the country that she is trying to rule. She will, of course, eventually be deposed, held in limbo by her relative Elizabeth in England before she's finally executed, accused of attempting to overthrow the Anglican Reformation in England, whether that's actually true or not. It's a sign of the kind of contempt in which she was held by Protestants north and south of the border in this period. I think that is quite important because... This idea of Mary Queen of Scots as a romantic and tragic figure, or even as a feminist figure, having fled to England, she was held in you know relatively comfortable jail, but she was plotting with the King of Spain, Philip II, and with the papacy to not just overthrow Elizabeth, but to have her murdered, and as David said, to, to restore Catholicism in England. Now, it's very difficult to talk about it in a modern context. You know, we have to obviously deal with sectarianism in Scotland and anti-Catholicism and so on. But I think it's important to say that what Mary Queen of Scots represented was that she wanted to turn the clock back and restore autocracy, absolute monarchy, in Scotland and England, and to restore Catholicism. And she was siding, as David said, not just with people who are brutally uh, you know, anti-Protestant, but, you know, Philip II of Spain, this is the king of the Spanish Inquisition, the Auto de Fa. This is the king who's trying to crush the Dutch Republic, uh, which is uh, Protestant. Mary Queen of Scots is not just on the wrong side of history. She's a reactionary figure. She's chased out of Scotland and executed in England because of her Catholicism and because of her loyalty to the King of Spain and the Pope. So I'm having none of this sort of romantic stuff about Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> Uh, so Knox materially shapes the direction of the early Scottish Kirk through both his direct contributions to the writing of the Scots Confession of Faith and the First Book of Discipline. What were the significance of both of these works? So when Knox is establishing the church, I mean, this is taking us back to kind of 1560 to 61. This is what I was saying earlier about the nobles also limiting um, his vision of the church. So in some senses, the new Scottish church, which is established through the Scottish Parliament, is a remarkable 
organization. It's neither compatible to the Catholic Church nor to the new kind of state churches like the one in England. Putatively, at least, it's a democratic body sort of representing the, the nation of the elect, the community of Christendom in Scottish society. In reality, it's heavily politically dominated by the nobles. So on most issues of doctrine, it's a fairly radical Calvinist church, and that's reflected in the Confession of Faith and the Book of Discipline. Bishops are kind of replaced by superintendents. A key idea in the Protestant Reformation is this idea of a priesthood of all believers. So rather than a church hierarchy dominating proceedings, every member of the Christian community, every male member, of course, is expected to play the role of the church. That's what the church is. It's the congregation. It's not the institution. And these ideas are reflected in the documents. However, behind the rhetoric, behind the kind of democratic appearance, is not just the power of the nobles themselves, but also the class interests of the nobility. And this becomes clear, particularly in the Book of Discipline. The Book of Discipline establishes a kind of far-reaching ecclesiastical authority that reaches not just into the religious life of Scots, but into their social and community life as well. So, for example, uh, a system of national education is supposed to be established, a universal system of education, a very radical idea in its time, and one that would go on to be extremely influential, not just in Scotland. If you've ever wondered why, Scottish education and some other Scottish institutions have always been kind of nationally administered rather than through the British state, even before the Scottish Parliament and devolution. This is why, because the Scottish church was established before the modern Scottish nation state, and it demanded its authority over these key areas of national life. But the Parliament doesn't support many of the radical ideas in the Book of Discipline, because John Knox wants them to be financed through the use of what was once the Roman Catholic Church's properties in Scotland. And who's in charge of those now? The nobility. So the very nobility who give the Reformation its political leadership in Scotland now step in in 1560-61 during the establishment of the new church to say, no, hang on, some of these ideas are too radical. These are also some of the figures, by the way, who will go on to, to kind of sideline Knox somewhat during the clash with Mary Queen of Scots in coming years on the basis that his denunciation of unchristian rulers is dangerous. So what you have here is a very clear sign of how the class basis of the Scottish Reformation is beginning to limit the vision that Knox has of this new Christian community. And this new community is very much being brought to the heel of these class elements. I think that that is a, it's a crucial turning point in the Scottish Reformation. It's not as dramatic as in many other European countries that Chris has mentioned, but it is a sign that there's a certain point where the Reformation begins to clash with established class forces, even those that have brought it into existence. This is where I think it's important to say something about Knox in a positive sense. I mean, there's a lot of negative things here, but he was the most important preacher and leader of the Reformation by a long way. But his importance, I think, is because he spearheaded the rejection of the papacy without, as we've discussed, as happened in England, leaving the church subject to the monarch. And he drastically purified the church. But if by Presbyterianism you mean elders working together in a hierarchy of courts of church, 
That begins to emerge more clearly in the second book of Discipline, 1578, and in the works of Andrew Melville, uh, who's reading the reform cause after Knox's death. And Knox has created the building blocks and the general vision of Presbyterianism, which are in place. But without Knox, I don't think you would have had this sharp, sudden reformation, which we had in Scotland, in contrast to that of England. I don't know if David agrees. It's a mystery to many historians why Scotland has this very thoroughgoing Calvinist reformation, which is much more associated with parts of Europe where urban life, for example, is much more advanced. So, for example, in the Swiss cantons, where many, much of the French Protestant diaspora is settling to create its reformed experiments, it's often said, and it's not entirely untrue, that Calvinism is sort of the most bourgeois outlet of the reformation process. So, if you've ever heard people complain about, um, you know, bourgeois sexual morality and so on, that's often linked to the Reformation projects, the Reformed Christian or Calvinist outgrowth of of Protestantism often appeals to these new layers of sort of urban intellectuals, urban smallholders, small proprietors, who in the chaos and disorder of the early modern period are trying to distinguish themselves as this new elect community, as this new body of moral, upright, upstanding, sober people. That's where we get the image of the Protestant Reformation from. It's really an image, by the way, of Calvinism. I mean, Martin Luther, for example, was a celebrator of sort of binging on food and booze and so on, which is why he's often depicted in counter-Reformation propaganda as this kind of disgusting slob and so on. The Calvinists, by comparison, emphasize that people should live this ascetic existence and they're often portrayed as these stick-thin figures um, who live cerebral lives of contemplation and prayer and so on. That is an ethos that emerges from the early kind of petty bourgeoisie living in the, in the cities. So how on earth is this very advanced, very modernist, it's, it's often actually referred to as a, a legalistic mode of thought as well, that theology of Calvinism bears this modern mark that you don't find in the Lutheran Reformation. The Lutheran Reformation is very obviously sort of medieval, whereas the, the Calvinist Reformation, which is going on at the same time, it kind of points towards much more modern ideas about how you construct a state-like community, you know, laws, social expectations, moral economy, and so on. So how on earth did you have Calvinism transplanted into one of the most backward parts of Europe in, in its day? In a contradictory way, the backwardness of Scotland at points helps with the establishment of Reformed Christianity in Scotland. The English Reformation, in a sense, it never has the same freedom that the Scottish Reformation has because the state is so much more advanced and centralised and the monarchy has a much stronger sway over the emerging national community. So it, it really is something that's unique in the historical development of Scotland. We're an outlier in European society. And it's just strange that to this day, it doesn't have a prominent place in our knowledge of Scottish history, because it's very important to how our, how our society developed, how we came to view ourselves, how we came to adopt our attitudes about how society should be organised, what should be involved in kind of public morality and so on. I think that's right. And I agree with that. And I think it's very important to stress that the role of the Kirk in policing society, 
For instance, in the 17th century, you get this huge wave of witch burnings. Now, these women are people who've got some medical skills with herbs and so on, possibly carry out abortions, certainly know something about midwifery. And there's this mass execution burning at the stake of witches. Doesn't happen in England. There is a difference, I think, which begins to open up with England, because David is right. In England, as he alluded to, there is chafing at the limits of the English Reformation. And among the middling sort, who really don't exist in Scotland in any number, the sort of emerging middle classes, epitomized by Oliver Cromwell, an agrarian figure in East Anglia, which is producing for capitalist modes of production, producing food for the southeast of England and London, tied in with sections not of the great merchants, but the law merchants. These people begin to study the Bible themselves, not just read the Bible, but study. And you've got this radical development of puricism, which will break out in the English Civil War. And at the beginning, they are allied with the Scots against King Charles I for attempting to reimpose bishops, the prayer book, and so on. But as the English Civil War radicalizes, all sections of the, the, the Scottish nobility in the Kunk turn against it and ally themselves with the Stuart monarchy in order to beat it down. So in a sense, yes, it's more far-reaching in the 1560s, 70s, 80s. But by the 1640s, Scottish Calvinism is playing a fairly reactionary role in terms of events which are happening in the three kingdoms in the fight against Stuart autocracy. Yeah, I think, that, I think that is a really interesting difference. So what you have in Scotland is rapidly constructed conformity around the church. And the fact that the church is nominally independent from the state makes that process much easier to complete. It's remarkable in a way that Elizabeth is able to establish this church because she instantly makes enemies on all sides. She annoys Catholic hardliners with her approaches towards Reformed theology, but she also upsets Calvinist, a, a significant Calvinist minority, who obviously can see that this new Anglican church maintains much of the old aesthetic, the rituals of Catholic tradition, because it's a conscious attempt on Elizabeth's part to not only create an independent church, which belongs to her and her nexus of power, but also to bring the English community back together, because of course they're badly split between Catholics and Protestants. We forget today, we think of the Puritans as having much more radical traditions. They'll only develop in the 1600s. In the 1500s, these are people who are, many of them were exiles with Knox on the continent, the Marian exiles. So it's one of those strange developments in history where at various points, Scotland, though being more backward in its economic and social development than England, it's able to kind of leap ahead of English developments with the creation of an independent church. But as Chris says, within a generation, um, Scotland has become a conservative force in these developments because it doesn't have this wider milieu of Christian communities living outside of the established church and demanding their own interpretation of the Bible. Finally, today John Knox generally gets a bad press. Where do you both place him in history? Uh, well, as I say, I don't think there would have been this sharp, short, sudden reformation, a more complete reformation, if it hadn't been for Knox in terms of his preaching. And I think that's really important. I think in many ways it's more as a preacher and later as a historian of the Scottish Reformation than as a theologian, and uh, Knox will be remembered. But I think he should be remembered for that. I think 
we should bear in mind all the problems which then accumulated, you know, down, uh, as, as I've alluded to. So that's where I think he stands. And he's a key figure in Scottish history. So when we discuss Scottish history, whatever position you take on Knox, you cannot ignore him. He's central to all this, much more so than, you know, someone like Mary Queen of Scots, who is in many ways a fairly peripheral figure. I'd like to uh, mention something else about Knox's legacy and how he's been received in Scottish society. So the, a very strange thing has happened, which is Knox has been almost purposely forgotten by the modern Scottish establishment. For a long time, of course, he was totemic of that establishment when the Scottish establishment was still very much Church of Scotland, which it was for hundreds of years. Especially since the middle of the 20th century, the Church of Scotland as an institution has entered into a sharp decline, and we've forgotten all about Knox and the Scottish Reformation. I'll tell you something extremely strange about modern Scotland. There is no single recognised book about the history of the Church of Scotland. It doesn't exist. That tells you the extent to which we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to talk about a huge part of our history. I think there's two reasons for that. One is that the story of the Scottish Reformation got tied up in people's minds with much later developments to do with anti-Catholicism and anti-Irish racism in Scottish society. Now, I think that to make Knox a sacrificial lamb for the crimes that the British establishment committed in Ireland and domestically against Irish and Catholic people in Scotland is an absolute travesty. Knox, of course, I mean, you can go to his writings and find lots of fiery denunciations of papism and so on. This has nothing to do with a much later development of British Empire bigotry when it comes to Ireland. And, you know, in the lifetime of everyone on this call and making this recording, the British state was fighting a dirty war in Northern Ireland. It's because the Scottish establishment and the British establishment don't want to come to terms with these crimes, with the with British dominance in Ireland, with the partition of the country, with the persecution of the waves of migrants who moved from Ireland to British cities. Because the establishment doesn't want to come to terms with these much more recent crimes, that it's happy to say, oh, all of this is the fault of these people 500 years ago who had um, no meaningless theological dispute and, and so on. I think that's an absolute travesty. And I don't think we should allow the establishment to get away with the sort of condescension of, of history. That's the first reason why I think Knox's um, profile has declined in Scottish society. It should be said, by the way, we don't even know where Knox's body is, but it's thought to be under a car park in Edinburgh. And there's barely a monument to this person in modern Scotland. There's a couple of statues. There's one in Glasgow overlooking the city and there's one in Edinburgh University. But by and large, we don't talk about this man, his contemporaries or his history. I think that the second reason why we don't discuss uh, Knox is much more modern and it can be portrayed through the very mediocre film about Mary Queen of Scots that came out about five or so years ago where we had this depiction of Mary Queen of Scots as a kind of uh, young liberal feminist trying to moderate crazy, cranky Reformation-era Scotland, as though Knox and his followers were the kind of eternal patriarchy of Scottish society, rather than a group of insurgents who had <laughs> recently transformed the country 
facing down, you know, a kind of absolutist reactionary figure. That is equally squalid and ridiculous. Remember as well, history is a discipline. It, it often tells us more about contemporary elites and how they want to view themselves than it tells us about the real historical situation. Modern Scottish elites like to portray themselves as people who are the liberal challengers of conservative Scotland. You know, this is very much the mood of the Scottish Parliament. When the Scottish Parliament rocked up in town, the people of Scotland were a bunch of sectarian face-slashing drunks with backward attitudes who really badly needed to be reformed as a nation. And so that this cult of the Mary, Queen of Scots, is a kind of liberal feminist hero plucked straight from the 21st century and dropped into the 1500s. She's really our elite's view of who they are. And Knox, on the other hand, cannot be easily portrayed in this way. So he's portrayed as a kind of knuckle dragger, as a thug, and, and so on. This has nothing to do with history. This is about how modern elites want to view themselves in, in Scottish society. And we should have no truck with that. Ultimately, I think that Knox should be rehabilitated as part of Scotland's historical story and his true story told. I don't mean venerated. He is a complex historical figure. He's not a hero of a radical reformation, but he is an extremely interesting figure and one that was very formative to Scottish society. He is someone who helped to transform Scotland and bring it into the modern era. He is the bridge between medieval Scotland and the modern era, and I think that's how he should be remembered. Thanks, David. And thanks, Chris, for a really fascinating look at the Scottish Reformation and John Knox. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to Rebel Lives, part of the People's History of Scotland podcast series. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot.com and make a donation, or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. Well, oh, well, oh, as to war we go to fight some foreign country That yesterday was our greatest friend, today's our enemy God bless our boys, the papers scream, praise them, the churchmen cry. But oh, when the war is done and we're all home, who cares if we live or die? Well, oh, well, oh, till that happy day, we're called to a heaven on high. Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives will be there on the day we die. But have you seen, no oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight That one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below